Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers, writers, and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie, and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or maybe even 300 sheets of loose leaf shoved into a drawer, and yes, at least once a month, I receive a big fat envelope with 300 sheets of loose leaf shoved into it. Visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. I'm so excited today to be talking about a book that we've published that is absolutely about unleashing your inner author. We're here today to discuss Launchpad, the countdown to writing your book. Now, Launchpad is a fabulous book that shot right to number one in Amazon, having to do with tips and tricks and insights about writing. It's not written just by one person, but by a whole team of fabulous, talented writers from around the world who got together on different topics to get you going. And don't be fooled while it says number one new release in fiction, it is absolutely for our nonfiction writers out there as well. So I'm excited to have three of our contributors on this fabulous book here with us today. Our first author today, Suzanne Dunlop, is the author of The Courtesan's Daughter. She's a historical novelist and an author accelerated certified book coach. Her love of history began in academia with a PhD in music history from Yale, but she soon decided it was much more fun to spin stories based on the remarkable figures and times she discovered than to write peer-reviewed articles. And she published her first historical novel with Touchstone Books, Simon & Schuster in 2005. She made the move into young adult fiction in 2010 and published four young adult historical novels. In 2019, Suzanne stumbled into the orbit of Jenny Nash, the CEO of Author Accelerator, and became certified in both fiction and nonfiction, which absolutely realized her cherished dream of helping others become an author like herself. She lives in Bidford, Maine, and we are so excited to have her with us today. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Oh, I'm so <laughs> really? thrilled to have you today. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah. fiction from a historian and a music historian at that. I love it. Yes, but don't be fooled. I do make things up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the best historians make things up. It's just that they make them up in such a way that we believe them. Right. Well, you know, history all history is an act of interpretation, you know, because you never know, unless you're actually physically there, you never know what really happened. And of course, you know, there aren't that many records of what people actually said, but um, I do both. One thing, it, it is International Women's, it's Women's yes. History Month, right? Mm -hmm. And all of my protagonists are women because I've sort of made it my personal uh, mission to uh, dig out the, the stories of women in history and bring them to life and make people kind of appreciate uh, what the contributions of women. And I have a lot of historical novelist friends who do the same thing. It's really interesting how women seem to be almost a lot of the focus of historical fiction. 
And I wonder if it's because there's so much material. (laughs) (laughs) I I do have to ask, though, as a writer now of historical fiction, how far back you got your start? Like when you were writing your dissertation for your uh, music history doctoral thesis, was it fact or fiction? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's. Well, that's fact, but it's inter- but it's interpretation, you know. I mean, I was trying to prove a certain thing in my and I and I dug around to get it. Um, that said, when I when I first started writing historical fiction, and it actually wasn't just because I decided it was more fun, which it was. It was because suddenly there were no jobs in any colleges for music it was that year you know it was those years when when everything was moving to stem and mm-hmm. all the humanities were kind of being cratered and and i couldn't move because i was an older student i had teenage kids in school and all that kind of thing so um you know i thought what am i going to do with all this knowledge i have i want to share it with somebody i want to share it with people who will get something out of it and i just you know, sort of started writing stories. And I thought, woo, this is a riot. But anyway. Wow, you are probably the first person I've ever interviewed who, uh, you know, maybe couldn't find a job in academia. So I don't know, to pay the bills, went into writing historical fiction. That's really an interesting jump. (laughs) Yes. Well, let me just assure you that writing historical fiction does not pay the bills. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i get yeah. that i get that entirely i yeah. made one more jump from being a writer yourself to being a book coach tell me a little bit about that jump Susan. that's so fascinating well it's again you know it's serendipity because i the company i was working for full-time closed its doors and i was a 64 year old woman with a lot of capabilities, but you know, who's going to hire a 64 year old woman. And, um, and I kind of, I started doing some editing and stuff, which I had done before. And I attended a um, webinar through Gotham Ghostwriters that Jenny Nash, who is the CEO of Author Accelerator was giving. And by the time I got to the end of the webinar, I thought that is what I want to do. That is me. And I signed up for the course like immediately. And I frankly think it was the best decision I ever made because not only does it allow me to work for myself and help writers, which I absolutely love to do, it also taught me a lot about my own writing. And I use that when I'm when I'm writing my own books, which I'm sure my fellow, you know, authors from from the from Launchpad absolutely can relate to that. Because if you're thinking about those kinds of things, you ha- they sort of find their way into your system and into your own writing. Absolutely. Now, in Launchpad, the, the chapter that you have is all about um, world-, world building. Yes. So tell me a little bit about it. It's funny. Usually we hear about world building from sci-fi writers. Not yes, that. I know. But, and, you know, and, and of course, sci-fi and fantasy writers have to do a lot of world building. And I do talk about that in the chapter. But I think what people don't appreciate is how essential it is, no matter what you're writing, in essence, to build the world that you take your reader to. Mm-hmm. And and as, when you are, are 
dealing with any unfamiliar world, whether it's in a historical setting or in an, a place like, you know, Bora Bora or something that people or that people don't really know a lot about, you have to situate your reader and you have to do it in a way that feels seamless, you know, and and to do that, you have to internalize all this stuff about your world and then really, really figure out the details the telling details that you're going to actually put in your book that you're at, that the reader's actually going to see. And um, there's just so much to think about, um, you know, even, even in a contemporary novel, there's, there's a certain amount of world building, but I didn't really say that. I was really talking about the unfamiliar worlds and, you know, there's different kinds of world, world building too. And um the things that are hard to find out in historical fiction, how much did things cost? What was money worth? You know, what did the average person, you know, what was the average person's relationship to money? Who had the power? Who, you know, I mean, there's just a ton of stuff, but you have to spend time researching that. But chances are there may be one little place in your book where, where that's relevant and it has to come in. But if you don't have it, and you haven't, and it's or it's wrong because you didn't research it. You're going to kick your reader right out of the story. Oh, I'm so glad that you're so. bringing this from the point of view of historical fiction, but that you also did mention that world building is not just when you have a fantastical world, but you have to think about it even in contemporary fiction. Yes, yes, yeah. Because I think I, I can't even remember who said it, but it just struck such a chord with me that the, one of the most important things you have to do is situate your reader in time and place. Mm. And what, and they have to be able to sort of enter that world and be there for the duration of your story. And because if you don't, it's, it's really hard to get them involved. Yes, no, I certainly get that. Could you tell us a little bit about The Courtesan's Daughter? Yes, this is, this is, uh, a, an interesting book for me. It's actually a mother-daughter story about uh, a mother and a daughter. Who a mother is a, an immigrant from France who came over very early um, when her, or sorry, when her um, daughter was was only little, like three years old, and they keep a lot of secrets from each other. And we don't know why the French why the French woman became an immigrant. We know a little bit about her past, and then, um, but. The daughter, she wants her daughter to be a teacher so that she can have a better life. She's there, they're doing piecework on the Lower East Side of New York. But the daughter wants to get into the moving pictures. She's absolutely enamored of the Vitagraph girl. And things happen. She runs away. I, I tell you, it was so much fun researching the early film industry in New York because most people think. Hollywood when they think of films, but nothing happened. No, it was all New York at first. And the reason they went to Hollywood was because there was more sun because they had, they didn't, there weren't enough hours of sunshine or enough sunny days to really, because they could use lights, but they were not all that, weren't as effective as the lighting we have today, of course. Um, and when they figured out they could go to California and, and have lots and lots of light, and be able to make more pictures that happened. But after the period of, it was just starting to happen at the end of, of my book. So, yeah. Fantastic, I, the film industry and I, well, I live in New York, so I'm glad that we put in a little plug for we started it. 
Yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I am so excited about uh, what you're doing. What are you working on now? Um, I actually have another book coming out in October. And I will let me just assure you, I didn't just write these books within, you know, these are books I've been working on since like 2016, 2017, and, and you know, deciding what to do with them and that sort of thing. But the one that's coming out in um, October also takes place in New York, and it's called The Adored One, and it's about uh, Lillian Lorraine and Florence Ziegfeld. She was the love of Florence Ziegfeld's life. He asked her to marry her four times, and she refused every time. And she was 15 when they met, and he was 41. So it's a really, and it's a fascinating story, really wild, and um but it was just fun to spend time in the uh, the Ziegfeld Follies and vaudeville and stuff like that. You know, it was really, really, and a whole fascinating world yeah. for world building too. Oh, absolutely! And you have to you have to know the little things, what the costumes were made of, what how they you know who who designed them. Did they you know how did they store them? Did they ever launder them? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And how do you? Even I am working at finding. Sorry, go things. ahead. How do you even go about finding those things? Whether they laundered their costumes. <laughs> um, there's stuff out there, and I will tell you, the internet is a historical novelist's best friend. And the reason is that so much has been digitized, so much good information, and you know, it's not just the paid scholarly articles anymore. It's it's just tons of information. And, you know, um, I always start at Wikipedia because the good articles have, have lots of citations and they give you sources to go to from there. But, um, you know, you have to know, you have to be able to say, okay, this person knows what they're talking about or this person doesn't or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's that... I, it's been a while since I've been able to travel to any place that my, you know, stories take place. Although I have done that. And I have a number of books that take place in Paris. And this was the one that came out in, in um, August about an 18th century French woman artist during, before, during, and after the revolution. So, uh, but, so I know Paris, but if you know Paris, you do not know Paris of the 18th century because Haussmann changed everything in the middle of the 19th century. The, all those broad avenues did not exist then. So it's, it's I don't know. I, I could just talk about this stuff for hours. So please stop me when we you've heard that. enough. We love that. But we, 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 will, <laughs> we will pause you just so we can meet our yes. author here today. Uh, Stacey Hoover is the author of Fooling Around with Cinderella. And uh, Stacy is the founder of Shortcuts for Writers, which helps fiction and creative nonfiction writers of all levels who want to simplify the writing and editing process so that they can save time and money. She published her first novel at the age of 18. Wow. And over the years has written sweet and sassy chiclet novels, mysteries about determined women sleuths and entertaining books for young adults and children. Uh, Stacy's also a freelance developmental editor and a creator of online courses for writers. 
and an award-winning journalist with over 3,000 articles to her name. Stacy was uh, the wonderful author who wrote about cleaning up your grammar and punctuation in your novel. Please welcome Stacy to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh my goodness, it was very funny because once I saw that there was going to be a chapter about grammar, then we all like, oh, we have to be careful. <laughs> As if we weren't careful enough. But, you know, somehow, uh, do you have a, a sweatshirt that says Grammar Nazi? Did people buy that for you or? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm I'm known for really marking up things <laughs> in I'm red. I'm sure that you are. I'm absolutely sure that you are. Wow, a novel at 18 and you've been going strong ever since? Yes, for 30 years. <laughs> that is amazing. Most 18 year olds can't, you know, have an enough attention span to read a novel, never mind write one. So I'm dazzled. <laughs> yeah, I'm so it was a, um, it was a, it was a short novel. It was a young adult novel about ice hockey, and I entered it in a contest sponsored by Avon Books, and then found out I won. So <laughs> needed to do the rewrites in my freshman dorm. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> well, everyone was partying around me. Did you I was pass it around for everybody to read. Do they read it or do they not even know? No, they didn't care. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So a chiclet novelist. I've got. I gotta love that because you know, as a, as a publisher, I read so much because of things that are sent to me. But when I go on vacation, my family knows it because I load up on chiclet just so for the plane ride. So. Thank you. Readers everywhere are thanking you for that. Yes, I love that. I love it also. It's... That's fantastic. And 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 me for movies as well. So it's yes. <laughs> and it's movies. But it's uh, interesting that you wrote uh, our segment in here about grammar and punctuation tips. So how did you get into grammar? Some of us avoid it. Some of us press a button and hope that our emails at least will get cleaned up. But you must really like it. So tell me a little bit. <laughs> Well, I used to, um, after college, I was a newspaper reporter and the, on my interview, the, the importance of grammar and punctuation and spelling was stressed to me because I had to take a spelling test on an old typewriter <laughs> and the editor asked me to spell words like accommodate and where would I put the comma and different <laughs> things like that. <laughs> um so working for a newspaper you know I was always working with co copy editors who would um clean up my clean up my articles so it just kind of became ingrained in me I mean I'm not a copy editor I, I prefer the creative developmental side and like um, line editing but um for my clients like I I will kind of evaluate their grammar you know I won't correct it all if you know a lot of them will need to work with a copy editor but I evaluate it and say okay these are some of the patterns I'm seeing and this is you know this is how you would punctuate dialogue correctly and try to at least introduce them to the concept and direct them to where they can get um, you know further resources. Fantastic tell us a little bit about shortcuts for writers what do you do and 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 how do we get in? <laughs> so I started out um, with editing books, and I, you know, I, I still do that, um, working with fiction, nonfiction writers. Um, and then I noticed that they were all making the same kinds of mistakes. Um, it's edited, and editing can be expensive, and, and a lot of authors didn't realize that 
one round of developmental editing isn't probably isn't going to be enough, especially if they're a beginner writer, it's more like several rounds of developmental editing. But of course, a lot of people are writing on the side and can't afford that. So I that inspired me to create my course, Book Editing Blueprint, a step-by-step -step plan to making your novels more publishable um, so that I could teach authors how to think like an editor so that they could start um, catching some of these issues on their own. I mean, not to replace hiring an editor, but to, the goal is to get to eliminate some of those earlier rounds of editing and so that when they do hire someone, they get a lot more value for their money because they're submitting a manuscript that's much further along other than one that's just filled with um, beginner mistakes they could have caught themselves. And then um, that expanded. I also uh, created a course called Time Management Blueprint for Writers, uh, Transform Your Life and Finish Your Book, which was inspired just by my <laughs> my quest for fitting in writing over the many you know years of my life from being a teenager to um, working full time to getting married and having babies and then kids I was chauffeuring around and teenagers and balancing different things. Um, and then I also created a, a mini course called the Energize Your Writing Toolkit um, Cheat Sheets for, um, for Writers, which is on, which is about body language and nonverbal communication. And again, that was just inspired by reading my clients' manuscripts and just seeing a lot of the same issues like repeating look and eyes and um, a lot of eyebrows raising and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I came up with a 100-page um, PDF with the with some videos and supplementary, supplementary materials to, to just inspire them to think beyond the cliche, like he looked at her, she gazed at him, their eyes met. Um, <laughs> more creative ways of expressing that. That's fabulous. I'm so glad you pointed out uh, two things really, you know, jumped out at me as you were speaking. One, that we all need editors. Don't don't think that, you know, uh, and, and this is something I especially love imparting upon new writers. Please don't think for a moment that that first thing that you write is a book. It is, it is a rough draft. It's a first toe into the water. Um, and, and don't be discouraged by that, but acknowledge that you, you just got into the car. You know, you're not there yet. And that's just so important. Suzanne? I was just going to say that when I first submitted a manuscript to an agent way back in the day in 2003, he called me and said, what you've written is not a novel. <laughs> 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 but he worked with me for a year so oh, on it so that was good but yeah yeah so that's so yeah. wonderful that he worked with you because most most people just don't even get you know a call back you know this that was then that was then this is now yeah. different world Absolutely. which I'm sure Stacy you know that, that what yeah. you do and what I do and what I I assume Meredith also does is it's be partly because of that shift in the publishing industry. So many people are writing and not getting the, because it's so hard, they're not getting the benefit of working with the editors at the publishing houses. Right, right. right. And so many people, and it's, and it's wonderful, this explosion of creativity. But Stacey, it really sounds like you, you, you're hitting it in a great spot that you're working with people, not to say, you're never going to need an editor, but if we can move you further along 
on your own, then the benefits you get from that editor, so much more exponential, so much more cost-effective, as you said, and that first draft then is much less raw, which is wonderful. Right. Because my, when that first um, book sale I made when I was 18, that came with the publishing contract, but it also came with a 10 page, like single space letter full of everything I needed to rewrite. <laughs> well, that's wonderful <laughs> that they took the time to do that. Yeah. And, and that was great. I mean, it was, you know, just learning in the trenches, but um, and, and that really advanced my writing that faster than anything else ever could just working one on one with a uh, um, with an editor at a publishing company, but as you were saying, nowadays it's much harder to get that um, attention. Um, even if you're, I, I even have clients who are multi-published authors that have publishing contracts, and they still hire a freelance editor just because they want it to be as strong as possible when they submit it to the editor at the publishing house. Oh, that's, so. that's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about fooling around with Cinderella? Yes, uh, that um, that's about a theme park princess, uh, a theme park Cinderella, who really doesn't want to be a theme park Cinderella. <laughs> she wants to be a publicist. <laughs> <laughs> she got uh, laid off from her job. And so she went to the local theme park because she was kind of ready for a change and wanted to just have more fun in her life. So she tries to talk them into hiring her as a publicist because she has all these great ideas about how they can compete with the zoo <laughs> down the street and get more mm-hmm. um get more tourists um but the the um general manager of the theme park he doesn't have the funds in his budget to hire her full-time as a publisher right, right now so he he let he hires her to do that sort of like part-time but what he really needs is a cinderella because all his cinderellas have just been quitting or going <laughs> goth or <laughs> Cinderella going goth. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think he called it the Cinderella curse because (laughs) as soon as he took over the um the position from his family, um all the Cinderellas just kind of it was one after another. (laughs) So he was desperate. At this point, that's what he needs. And um, and then she they wind up being attracted to one another and will he wind up being her prince charming <laughs> oh my goodness i love that well especially because i love theme parks and cinderella and what's not to love <laughs> <laughs> absolutely adore that that's just fabulous and i'm sure that all the commas and m dashes are in all the right places too yes <laughs> <laughs> i hope so <laughs> i don't doubt it for a moment i do have to tell you a, a very funny story about uh, Launchpad, when we were working on it with uh, Emma Desi and Grace Salmon, the authors on it, um, because of your chapter, the three of us had a, a full-on discussion about the editing of the various contributor chapters. And it was like, oh, not everybody is actually following you know, the where the space comes before an ellipse and things like that oh, kind yeah. of question. So we ended up with it with a one hour discussion about this. And um, as, as much as I so love for myself, knowing what should be um, what I had said, and we do this in our own anthology programs here, is that we do try to retain the writer's style. And I know for myself, like, I know I'm an ellipse and exclamation point kind of a girl. 
that's who I am. And um, if you edited it out of my writing, it would no longer be me. It's probably overly done. I get it. But, you know, it also is a stylistic question. So you, the three of us had a big discussion about retaining style. And it was all because we, we kind of sat there thinking, Stacy's watching us. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually because of you. Nobody else. It was because Stacy's watching us. We better do this right. And uh, and I was the one who stood up for, well, you know, some authors kind of do this with their M dash and it may not be right. But, you know, if they do it over and over and if they're consistent, I kind of don't want to drum that out of them kind of a thing. Yeah. So it is tricky. I, I edited an anthology. I've edited a couple of anthologies. One um, was called 25 Years in the Rearview Mirror. And it was sort of. Uh, inspired by my mystery novel 25 years ago today and and I had a bunch of authors just kind of look back at what they were doing 25 years ago and then but and it just everything sort of went into a different category like in school memories work memories romance um but it was fascinating reading them but then there was that decision of oh I have all I have like 25 authors and they're all punctuating things differently and they're from all over so I think as a publisher you just have to make that decision yeah. No, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And we also have, when we publish anthologies ourselves, uh, authors from around the world so that everyone's use of the English language, if they're in America or in Britain or in India, uh, you know, totally different. Uh, I, I've had to tell our own editors, uh, this author's from India. Don't anglicize, you know, Americanize everything. Their spelling gets to stand. That's That's not incorrect for them. Keep in the use. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's one thing we mentioned in the chapter also is just that, you know, it's up to the publisher and their style guides and every publisher is going to have a different, different Absolutely. feelings on it. And if you're not sure, if you're working with the publisher, then ask, ask them if they have any preference. And if you're self-publishing, then you just need to make those decisions like for yourself and Right. And, and make them consistently. I find, you know, right. when I get manuscripts, I'm sure you do this the same, that, you know, if you're doing something consistently for the first 20 pages and then all of a sudden you change and you no longer do whatever that was, that that's a big red flag right there. And I'm sure with uh, your, um, your, your groups and your online classes and whatnot in writing, that's a big red flag that comes up a lot, I'm sure. Right, right. See that a lot too with character names, where suddenly you, you, the the writer will spell the name, like two uh, characters' name, a couple of different ways. <laughs> exactly. No, that's very, very true. And not something, by the way, folks, is that's going to come up in spell check. So you need to really <laughs> double check how you're spelling. I've had people not only spell the character's name different, but actually change the the character's name. Like the bad guy was Bob, and and halfway through the book it was Joe, and I'm saying. Yeah. Is there a new bad guy? <laughs> I've seen that also where I'm like, okay, I think you met, you know, I'm like, I think you must have changed his name, but just double, check, just double check checking. Because... Or or you forgot an entrance because Joe yeah. forgot to walk in and, and take over. You know, maybe he did. Maybe it's like Zorro and there's a new <laughs> bad guy in town, but we need to know about that. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for everything you do and, and for what you have uh, added for us here in Launchpad. Um, our third author today, Meredith Stoddard, is the author of The River Maiden. 
And Meredith writes folklore-inspired fiction from her writing shed in Virginia. She studied literature and folklore at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill before working as a corporate trainer and instructional designer. Her love of storytelling is inspired by years spent listening to stories at her grandmother's kitchen table. She also helps authors to create repeatable processes for productive writing. I love those repeatable processes I want to hear more about. Please welcome Meredith, Meredith Stoddard. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, such a thrill and a storyteller. You know, when it all boils down to it, that's what we are as storytellers. And I love that, that you're bringing this right back to, to your grandmother. So tell us a little bit about grandma. I love that. Oh, gosh. Um, my grandmother is uh, 105 years old. She was born in 1975. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, still lives in a lives in a house that her great grandfather built. Um, and uh, yeah, she loves to tell stories and she's kept, um, you know, it's a small town in North Carolina and she's kind of kept the history of the town um, and, you know, has so many stories to share about our family, but also about some of the other, you know, families that have been there as long as she has. Oh my gosh, 105 and still, and she still yeah. remembers the stories. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that it's pretty that... amazing. We're very lucky to have her. Well, you come from good stock. That's all I <laughs> I hope so. I, I do a bit of genealogy. And if you look back in our family tree on her side, there's a lot of people who are living way past the average life expectancy. So I'm hoping that I got those genes too. Oh, that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, you have a very interesting background that you came from from being a corporate trainer and now you're a storyteller. Tell me a little bit. Yes. About so, well, there's a lot of stories to be told when you're teaching and training. That's one of the things that helps people encode those memories is if we can fit them into some sort of narrative. So, um, so there was storytelling involved there as well. I just happened to be storytelling about professional tax preparation software, which is not nearly as exciting as what I write about now. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, it was a wonderful sort of preparation for life as an indie author, because I, at the time I would design training material, write the manual, teach the class, you know, edit and publish the manual to be ready for um, teaching the class. And, and it was a, you know, Fortune 100 company. So it was pretty large. And um, so I had the project management experience, the writing experience, editing and publishing um, and process improvement. So part of my job as a trainer was analyzing the performance and job behaviors of the people that work there and figuring out how to make those processes more efficient and um, you know, more satisfying for everybody. So uh, all of those things, I'm kind of rolling into one with uh, the book grower, which is my coaching business, and helping authors improve their own processes and constantly being, you know, analyzing um, how to improve those processes as you go, you know, being able to recognize when something's not working and shift gears if you need to. That's amazing. You are the first person I've ever interviewed that actually talked about writing and processes. You know, sometimes <laughs> we have checklists and this and that, but I love the way you, you know, you're really appealing to my type A over here. <laughs> so, and, and streamlining the process so that people can be more productive. 
mm-hmm. which is amazing. Tell us a little bit more about your business. Um, well, as I said, I'm looking to help authors improve process. I'm always looking at my own process and trying to figure out, you know, what I can do to improve it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I like to talk with authors about where they are. I think all of us um, in talking with other writers, we've talked to people who say like, I've started a book, but I don't know how to you know, finish it. Or I started and I got in the middle and it got all squidgy and I didn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, I love to go in and help analyze that and get writers thinking about it in the terms of looking at the big picture um, and looking at, you know, what's your plan for this book? What are you, you know, what are your goals? What does success look like for you? Fantastic. And and I now I'm understanding completely why your your chapter here was about online research tools for writers. It's making a lot more sense now. So tell me a little bit about research because I loved reading this. I learned so much about Google reading your chapter. That's for sure. Oh yeah. I have to thank my husband for that one. He's a software engineer and he kind of after getting very tired of me asking him to search for things for me. Uh, sort of taught me these uh, these tips and tricks on how to how to search smartly, um, and uh, and so yeah, those all of those different um, smart keys and things like that are a big help. Um, and it's also I think when you're researching on the internet, a lot of it has to do with media literacy and knowing what sources are good. Um, you know, it's like Suzanne was saying, you can go to Wikipedia. And the article is fine if you're looking for a basic overview, but if you want to make sure that you're using a reliable source, you got to look down at the source material uh, at the bottom of all of those articles and use that as your bibliography to you know, further your research. Um, so there are a lot of things like that. But then when we're authors and when we're writing, especially with, if we're writing fiction, we have to think about other things and researching more than just facts, right? We have to research how people react to things and what the atmosphere is like in a setting and, um, you know, all of these weird little details that give your writing credibility and create that world that Suzanne was talking about, but also, um, you know, we might not normally think of when we're talking about facts. If we're doing historical fiction, you might research a lot of the historical facts, but you still have to fill in those things um, that, you know, are interesting details, like what does it smell like and um, stuff like that. And that's the kind of thing that uh, that you can find out um, using the right sources. Absolutely. And the weather. The weather is another thing you yes. can find out. I love that. And and I love that you were talking about, you know, Suzanne had mentioned that, that Google can be your best friend when you're writing this, but searching smarter because there's so much out there that, you know, it could be a little bit like you're drowning in a sea of paper if you don't know how to search well. So your, your smart search techniques were so appreciated. I was I was bookmarking it, I was writing things. I said, oh, dovetailing, <laughs> I gotta do all these things. This was fantastic, thank you. Well, tell us please a little bit about The River Maiden and your once and future book series. Sure, um, The River Maiden uh, is the first book in the series and um, it starts with Sarah, who is an ethnomusicologist, um, and um, and she is working on her dissertation uh, about um, Scottish Gaelic music in the New World. And so she is researching a song that her grandmother, who emigrated from Scotland in the early 20th century, 
taught her and uh, when she was a little girl. And so she's traveled to Nova Scotia and she lives in North Carolina and she's kind of working her way to try to find the source for this song. And in the course of doing that explores um, some pretty traumatic things that happened in her childhood and some more of her family history that she doesn't expect. Uh, she meets a Scottish colleague who um, has some interesting motives um, and uh, and gets embroiled in some conspiracies. So it's uh, it's a kind of a bit of a mystery, little conspiracy theory uh, stuff. And, uh, you know, also a very important, very big romance. That is a love story that stretches through all of the books. So, Oh my goodness. Well, I loved watching Suzanne's face when your protagonist is a musicologist. <laughs> classic. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, it's another situation, you know, much like Suzanne said, I studied folklore at, um, at Carolina and one of my favorite professors uh, talked me out of going to graduate school for folklore because he said there just weren't any jobs. And, um, <laughs> And but I couldn't not use that knowledge. Like I couldn't just sit back. And so I've been collecting folklore books for the you know for years, and um, combing through them and reading them, and just couldn't sit with that without telling some story about it. I love that absolutely. Yes, I I think that uh, we all need to be buying some more books here on the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I want to read both of those books for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, my my mother is a huge Scottish outlander, like folklore. Oh, she would love this series. <laughs> I totally, yeah. As you were talking, I was like, mom, mom, yeah. getting these books sent to her. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, while we're talking about my mother and our target reader, um, I always like love to ask uh, when I'm speaking with authors, who should we buy your book for? So if I were shopping today, you know, who who is your book good for? I'll start off the ball by talking about Launchpad. Uh, <laughs> I know that we're never supposed to say that, oh, my book is good for everyone, because that's really not true. But um, surveys do say that 90% of people do want to write a book. And I would vouch for that um, because every place I go, since people know that I work in the industry, they immediately, oh my gosh, I wrote a book. I want to write a book. I'm thinking about writing a book. Um, so I do believe that 90%. So while I can't say everyone wants to, a huge percentage do. Uh, Launchpad, the countdown to writing your book is a fabulous, fabulous book for anyone who is interested in starting writing who has been writing, who has been writing for years and wants to read some fabulous insights from amazingly talented writers. Um, it is the number one new release in fiction writing, but I will say it is also incredibly valuable for nonfiction writers. There is so much good stuff in there. So Launchpad for pretty much everyone. Suzanne, can you describe a little bit about who I should be buying The Courtesan's Daughter for today? Well, there's a whole bunch of people who really love 20th century historical fiction, first of all, which hurts me because, you know, I was born in the middle of the 20th century. <laughs> but um, but I think it's also uh, someone who wants a, a, a story, a mother-daughter story that's that has a lot of, you know, that, that shows kind of the, I think it shows the commonality of, the relationship even then compared to now. Um, 
and it's you know it has it has some romance and adventure and all that sort of thing but it, it it's coming of age for one of them and it's not for the other <laughs> so so you know it, it, i don't i haven't it's so funny because i wrote this before i ever did any um book coaching and oh. that question of who would read your book um is one that we ask a lot. I mean, it's like, who are, who is your ideal reader? And I never sort of addressed that with this book. <laughs> so this question kind of leaves me a little flat-footed, honestly. <laughs> so you could have all the time in the world to say, I'm not really sure who's going to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have a readership. So I imagine a lot of the people who read my books will want to read it. Absolutely. I hope more than that because the readership is not huge. Uh, well, and, and growing while we're sitting here on the air, I'm sure. I hope so. Absolutely. Yeah. Stacy, tell us a little bit about your, who should be buying Fooling Around with Cinderella. Uh, well, several people have, read it, have told me that they think it should be a Hallmark movie. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yes. If anybody from Hallmark that. is listening. But <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so I think if you if you like Hallmark movies, if you like those kind of sweet romance, but except I'd say this is I call it sweet and sassy because it's it's funny, it's romantic comedy. So if you just want to, if you have a mother or sister or friend that wants to that likes to read something light um, and funny, and they love those Hallmark movies, um, and also if they love to travel like if they like Disney if <laughs> somebody who loves <laughs> Disney World would love this <laughs> I love Disney World I actually got engaged at Epcot and went to Disneyland oh. Paris on my honeymoon oh that's awesome <laughs> I, I, so. I love Disney World too I owned a house at the gates of Disney World for about oh. 10 years so that I can go constantly so I'm oh, right wow. there with you <laughs> <laughs> so I if you want to go to Disneyland somebody wants to go to Disney World but they just can't get there at least they can Absolutely. get that experience and i do hope that the the uh, producers at hallmark heard that um besides me loving hallmark movies um my husband actually has never seen a princess music movie hallmark movie that he does princess for christmas a prince for christmas <laughs> you name it so when he hears about this one when it makes the movies we will be catching it on netflix i have no doubt <laughs> uh Meredith, besides my mom, who is absolutely getting a copy of The River Maiden because of her love of uh, all things mm. Scotland, tell me a little bit about your readers. Um, well, Scotiafiles, obviously, uh, <laughs> but uh, also Tar Heels. The first book is set mostly in North Carolina, mm. uh, but uh, it is contemporary fantasy, so it really appeals to, uh, in academia, so it really would appeal to folks who like um, Deborah Harkness's All Souls uh series uh, discovery of witches and the book of life and stuff like that um and also outlander fans um you know it's that got that scotland and north carolina connection mm. and anybody who loves a good book boyfriend because dermot sinclair is absolutely <laughs> book boyfriend material oh i love that I, I i have to admit i don't think i've heard that term before but oh my gosh that's like uh especially sure, for a the last person jamie fraser would be another good book boyfriend like uh, you know that kind of guy that all of us sort of dream about yeah i think i must be the last person that rolled up your tongue and i'm thinking why do i not know about book boyfriends i definitely know uh, suzanne made a comment about Susanna kearsley i love her books as well so this would be a great fit for those. i think i've just read five or six in a row <laughs> 
<laughs> the winter tea is one of my favorites. Oh, it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, besides introducing our viewers to some fabulous books here, all three of you are doing so much amazing work with authors and such. So I would love for you to just remind us um, where we can find you and what are you doing that uh, our show goes out to readers and writers. So Suzanne, tell us about the writers you work with and how we can find you. Uh, I've I worked with a lot of historical novelists because they find me. I also coach memoir and other kinds of fiction and mystery and things like that. Um, and my website is Suzanne-Dunlap.com. And I spell Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. And it's really, there's everything about my my books and my coaching is on that website and and I'm on social media and all that sort of stuff so it's pretty easy to find me um I I love working with fiction authors I also coach nonfiction, but I do less of that uh because my big thing is the storytelling is the actual which is why coaching memoir works too because that's a story a narrative memoir is storytelling the same sort of thing so um, that would be Fantastic. the easiest way to find me. Perfect. Yes. Stacey, how about you? What kind of writers are you working with and where can we find you? I work with a lot of fiction writers, mostly fiction writers, but, um, some memoir writers and self-help writers. Um, the, they can find me at shortcutsforwriters.com and I have a lot of free re resources in addition to my paid classes. I have a free five-day line editing class, um, a looks and gazes guide that has some <laughs> alternatives or other ways to express those looks and gazes. Um, and I have a couple of um, master classes, free um, master classes on self-editing and time management. So they can find those at shortcutswriters.com. And I also have a Facebook group, the Shortcuts for Writers Editing Made Simple Facebook group. Fantastic. Thank you. And Meredith, how about you? Tell us about working with writers and where we find you. Um, well, uh, for writers, I'm happy to work with any writer. Um, I do tend to work with uh, beginning writers a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I like I said, I have experience with both fiction and nonfiction. So I'm happy to talk with everybody. I'm at thebookgrower.com um, and also meredithstoddard.com if you're interested in the fiction. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And for all of our viewers, uh, you have three fabulous books to, to pick up from these authors. Four, because you're going to grab Launchpad and get started writing your book. And when you do get started writing your, your book, we have three amazing women here today who could help you get that book done. So thank you so much for joining us on Between the Covers.